Thus did charity compel her to take upon herself the illnesses and even the temptations of others, that they might be able in peace to prepare themselves for death. She was compelled to suffer in silence, both to conceal the weaknesses of her neighbor and not to be regarded as mad herself. She was obliged to receive all the aid that medicine could afford her for an illness thus taken voluntarily for the relief of others, and to be reproached for temptations which were not her own. Finally, it was necessary that she should appear perverted in the eyes of men, that so those for whom she was suffering might be converted before God. One day a friend in deep affliction was sitting by her bedside when she suddenly fell into a state of ecstasy and began to pray aloud, O oh, sweet Jesus, permit me to carry that heavy stone. Her friend asked her what was the matter. I am on my way to Jerusalem, she replied, and I see a poor man walking along with the greatest difficulty, for there is a large stone upon his breast, the weight of which nearly crushes him. Then again, after a few moments, she exclaimed, Give me that heavy stone. You cannot carry it any farther. Give it to me. All on a sudden, she sank down fainting, as if crushed, beneath some heavy burden, and at the same moment her friend felt himself relieved from the weight of sorrow which oppressed him, and his heart was overflowing with extraordinary happiness. Seeing her in such a state of suffering, he asked her what the matter was, and she, looking at him with a smile, replied, I cannot remain here any longer. Poor man, you must take back your burden. Instantly, her friend felt all the weight of his affliction return to him, while she, becoming as well again as before, continued her journey in spirit to Jerusalem. We will give one more example of her spiritual exertions. One morning she gave her friend a little bag containing some rye flour and eggs, and pointed out to him a small house where a poor woman, who was in consumption, was living with her husband and two little children. He was to tell her to boil and take them, as when boiled they would be good for her chest. The friend, on entering the cottage, took the bag from under his cloak, when the poor mother, who flushed with fever, was lying on a mattress between her half-naked children, fixed her bright eyes upon him, and holding out her thin hands, exclaimed, O oh, sir, it must be God or Sister Emmerich who sends you to me. You are bringing me some rye flour and eggs. Here the poor woman, overcome by her feelings, burst into tears and then began to cough so violently that she had to make a sign to her husband to speak for her. He said that the previous night Gertrude had been much disturbed, that had talked a great deal in her sleep, and that on awaking she had told him her dream in these words. I thought that I was standing at the door with you when the holy nun came out of the door of the next house, and I told you to look at her. She stopped in front of us and said to me, Ah, oh, Gertrude, you look very ill. I will send you some rye flour and eggs, which will relieve your chest. Then I awoke. Such was the simple tale of the poor man. He and his wife both eagerly expressed their gratitude, 
and the bearer of Anne Catherine's alms left the house much overcome. He did not tell her anything of this when he saw her, but a few days later she sent him again to the same place, with a similar present, and he then asked her how it was she knew that poor woman. You know, she replied, that I pray every evening for all those who suffer. I should like to go and relieve them, and I generally dream that I am going from one abode of suffering to another, and that I assist them to the best of my power. In this way I went in my dream to that poor woman's house. She was standing at the door with her husband, and I said to her, Ah, Gertrude, you look very ill. I will send you some rye flour and eggs, which will relieve your chest. And this I did through you the next morning. Both persons had remained in their beds, and dreamed the same thing, and the dream came true. St. Augustine in his City of God, Book 18, C. 18, relates a similar thing of two philosophers who visited each other in a dream and explained some passages of Plato, both remaining asleep in their own houses. These sufferings and this peculiar species of active labor were like a single ray of light which enlightened her whole life. Infinite was the number of spiritual labors and sympathetic sufferings which came from all parts and entered into her heart, that heart so burning with love of Jesus Christ. Like St. Catherine of Siena and some other ecstatics, she often felt the most profound feeling of conviction that our Savior had taken her heart out of her bosom and placed his own there instead for a time. The following fragment will give some idea of the mysterious symbolism by which she was interiorly directed. Through a portion of the year 1820, she performed many labors in spirit for several different parishes, her prayers being represented under the figure of most severe labor in a vineyard. What we have above related concerning the nettles is of the same character. On the 6th of September, Anne Catherine related that her heavenly guide said to her, You weeded, dug around, tied, and pruned the vine. You ground down the weeds so that they could never spring up any more, and then you went away joyfully and rested from your prayers. Prepare now to labor hard from the feast of the nativity of the Blessed Virgin to that of St. Michael. The grapes are ripening and must be well watched. Then he led me, she continued, to the vineyard of St. Libori, and showed me the vines at which I had worked. My labor had been successful, for the grapes were getting their color and growing large, and in some parts the red juice was running down on the ground from them. My guide said to me, When the virtues of the good begin to shine forth in public, they have to combat bravely to be oppressed to be tempted, and to suffer persecution. A hedge must be planted around the vineyard in order that the ripe grapes may not be destroyed by thieves and wild beasts, i.e., by temptation and persecution. He then showed me how to build a wall by heaping up stones and to raise a thick hedge of thorns all around. As my hands bled from such severe labor, God, 
in order to give me strength, permitted me to see the mysterious signification of the vine and of several other fruit trees. Jesus Christ is the true vine who is to take root and grow in us. All useless wood must be cut away in order not to waste the sap which is to become the wine and in the most blessed sacrament the blood of Christ. The pruning of the vine has to be done according to certain rules which were made known to me. This pruning is, in a spiritual sense, the cutting off whatever is useless, penance and mortification, that so the true vine may grow in us and bring fruit, and the place of corrupt nature, which only bears wood and leaves. The pruning is done according to fixed rules, for it is only required that certain useless shoots should be cut off in man. To lop off more would be to mutilate in a guilty manner. No pruning should ever be done upon the stock which has been planted in humankind through the Blessed Virgin, and is to remain in it forever. The true vine unites heaven to earth, the divinity to humanity, and it is the human part that is to be pruned, that so the divine alone may grow. I saw so many other things relating to the vine that a book as large as the Bible could not contain them. One day, when I was suffering acute pain in my chest, I besought our Lord with groans not to give me a burden above my strength to bear, and then my heavenly spouse appeared and said to me, I have laid thee on my nuptial couch, which is a couch of suffering. I have given thee suffering and expiation for thy bridal garments and jewels. Thou must suffer, but I will not forsake thee. Thou art fastened to the vine, and thou wilt not be lost. Then I was consoled for all my sufferings. It was likewise explained to me why in my visions relating to the feasts of the family of Jesus, such, for instance, as those of St. Anne, St. Joachim, St. Joseph, etc., I always saw the church of the festival under the figure of a shoot of the vine. The same was the case on the festivals of St. Francis of Assisi, St. Catherine of Siena, and of all the saints who have had the stigmata. The signification of my sufferings in all my limbs was explained to me in the following vision. I saw a gigantic human body in a horrible state of mutilation, and raised upwards toward the sky. There were no fingers or toes on the hands and feet. The body was covered with frightful wounds, some of which were fresh and bleeding, others covered with dead flesh or turned into excrescences. The whole of one side was black, gangrened, and as it were half eaten away. I suffered as though it had been my own body that was in this state, and then my guide said to me, This is the body of the church the body of all men, and thine also. Then, pointing to each wound, he showed me at the same time some part of the world. I saw an infinite number of men and nations separated from the church, all in their own peculiar way, and I felt pain as exquisite from this separation as if they had been torn from my body. And my guide said to me, Let thy sufferings teach thee a lesson. 
and offer them to God in union with those of Jesus for all who are separated. Should not one member call upon another and suffer in order to cure and unite it once more to the body? When those parts which are most closely united to the body detach themselves, it is as though the flesh were torn from around the heart. In my ignorance, I thought that he was speaking of those brethren who are not in communion with us. But my guide added, Who are our brethren? It is not our blood relations who are the interest, who are the nearest to our hearts, but those who are brethren in the blood of Christ, the children of the church who fall away. He showed me that the black and gangrene side of the body would soon be cured, that the putrefied flesh which had collected around the wounds represented heretics who divide one from the other in proportion as they increase, that the dead flesh was the figure of all who are spiritually dead and who are void of any feeling, and that the ossified parts represented obstinate and hardened heretics. I saw and felt in this manner every wound and its signification. The body reached up to heaven. It was the body of the bride of Christ, and most painful to behold. I wept bitterly, but feeling at once deeply grieved and strengthened by sorrow and compassion, I began again to labor with all my strength. Sinking beneath the weight of life and of the task imposed upon her, she often besought God to deliver her. She then would appear to be on the very brink of the grave. But each time she would say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. If my prayers and sufferings are useful, let me live a thousand years, but grant that I may die rather than ever offend thee. Then she would receive orders to live, and arise, taking up her cross, once more to bear it, in patience and suffering after her Lord. From time to time, the road of life which she was pursuing used to be shown to her, leading to the top of a mountain on which was a shining and resplendent city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Often she would think she had arrived at that blissful abode, which seemed to be quite near her, and her joy would be great. But all on a sudden she would discover that she was still separated from it by a valley, and then she would have to descend precipices and follow indirect paths, laboring, suffering, and performing deeds of charity everywhere. She had to direct wanderers into the right road, raise up the fallen, sometimes even carry the paralytic, and drag the unwilling by force, and all these deeds of charity were as so many fresh weights fastened to her cross. Then she walked with more difficulty, bending her burden and sometimes even falling to the ground. In 1823, she repeated more frequently than usual that she could not perform her task in her present situation, that she had not strength for it, and that it was in a peaceful comment that she needed to have lived and died. She added that God would soon take her to himself, and that she had besought him to permit her to obtain by her prayers in the next world what her weakness would not permit her to accomplish in this. 
St. Catherine of Siena, a short time before death, made a similar prayer. Anne Catherine had previously had a vision concerning what her prayers might obtain after death with regard to things that were not in existence during her life. The year 1823, the last of which she completed the whole circle, brought her immense labors. She appeared desirous to accomplish her entire task, and thus kept the promise which she had previously made of relating the history of the whole passion. It formed the subject of her Lenten meditations during this year, and of them the present volume is composed. But she did not on this account take less part in the fundamental mystery of this penitential season, or in the different mysteries of each of the festival days of the Church, if indeed the words, to take part, be sufficient to express the wonderful manner in which she rendered visible testimony to the mystery celebrated in each festival by a sudden change in her corporal and spiritual life. See on this subject the chapter entitled, Interruption of the Pictures of the Passion. Every one of the ceremonies and festivals of the Church was to her far more than the consecration of a remembrance. She beheld in the historical foundation of each solemnity an act of the Almighty, done in time for the reparation of fallen humanity. Although these divine acts appeared to her stamped with the character of eternity, yet she was well aware that in order for man to profit by them in the bounded and narrow sphere of time, he must, as it were, take possession of them in a series of successive moments, and that for this purpose they had to be repeated and renewed in the church, in the order established by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. All festivals and solemnities were in her eyes eternal graces, which returned at fixed epochs in every ecclesiastical year, in the same manner as the fruits and harvests of the earth come in their seasons in the natural year. Her zeal and gratitude in receiving and treasuring up these graces were untiring, nor was she less eager and zealous in offering them to those who neglected their value. In the same manner as her compassion for her crucified Savior had pleased God and obtained for her the privilege of being marked with the stigmata of the Passion, as with the seal of the most perfect love, so all the sufferings of the Church and of those who were in affliction were repeated in the different states of her body and soul. And all these wonders took place within her, unknown to those who were around her, nor was she herself even more fully conscious of them than is the bee of the effects of its work. While yet she was tending and cultivating, with all the care of an industrious and faithful gardener, the fertile garden of the ecclesiastical year, she lived on its fruits and distributed them to others. She strengthened herself and her friends with the flowers and herbs which she cultivated, or rather, she herself was in this garden like a sensitive plant, a sunflower, or some wonderful plant in which, independent of her own will, were reproduced all the seasons of the year, all the hours of the day, and all the changes of the atmosphere. <laughs>